I had learned in Pittsburgh that my neighbours would do anything to make their neighbourhood better. They would to band together and buy a vacant house to stop it from being from falling into the wrong hands. And I really thought there was an opportunity here to create a vehicle for communities to invest in real estate in their own community. So that's really how small change came about on the back of pretty new legislation that is pretty burdensome, which we ma- which we manage for people who want to raise money. Um, but it is a pretty inspiring legislation because it's it's the the SEC's first attempt to really democratize investment. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello and welcome to episode number 40 of the Placemaking Podcast. I am excited to have you all here today. This is another fun one. I'm thrilled to share this one with all of you. Eve is the founder of Small Change. Her background as an architect, city planner, urban designer, real estate developer, community development strategist, publisher, and instigator gives her a rich understanding of how cities work, how urban neighborhoods can be revitalized, what policies are needed to do it, and the unique marketing that creates the buzz needed for regeneration in an area. Needless to say, she knows her stuff when it comes to the business of real estate. In this episode, we're going to discuss the genesis of small change, the difficulties that Eve and her team face when starting up this crowdfunding platform, as well as understanding the process for offering and investing on projects within the platform. There's loads of great information in this episode, and I greatly appreciate Eve for taking the time out of her extremely busy schedule to discuss this topic of real estate development crowdfunding with me. So as always, if you've enjoyed the show, I'd ask that you please subscribe to the show and share with your friends in the industry. There'll be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show, Eve. Hi, Matt. Thank you very much for having me here today. I'm honored to have you on here, and I can't wait to just dive right in. I gave you a little intro before the show, but if you would just kind of give us an idea of where you started in real estate, and then we'll just kind of, you know, take that all the way through to where you're at right now. Sure. So probably I started with Lego blocks when I was a young child. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm an architect by training and, and I, and I chose that um, at a time that when there wasn't as much choice as there is today um, in a country where there isn't as much choice as the U.S. Um, because I really was, I was pretty good at numbers and I really liked them, but I also was really creative and loved making things. And so architecture seemed like a, a good medium path for creativity and, um, m- you know, more quantitative um, work. And and um, so that's really how I started my career as an architect. And I became very interested in cities and took myself to the U.S., Columbia Universities, to get a, a master's in urban design because I really wanted to understand how buildings fit into the 
the bigger landscape cities. And that was probably a, a turning point for me, as was moving to Pittsburgh, which um, gave me a whole host of other education about cities that are failing and, and why and what you can do to uh, revitalize them. So buildings and architectures and cities have kind of always, always been in my background, always part of my interest. I really haven't known much else. <laughs> That's awesome. How long were you an architect before you went to Columbia? And- oh, um, so architecture school was six years, and then I worked for a couple of years, and uh, and then went to Columbia to do a master's, which was one year, and then I I worked for for, for a few years after that. Um, in between, I worked for an architect in Vienna, Austria. I worked for an architect in um, New York. I worked for an architect in Princeton and then for one in Pittsburgh. And really what changed um, my role in real estate was when I um, I moved into a, um, an, a really interesting neighborhood architecturally in Pittsburgh. We'd, we'd moved there unexpectedly and really probably at – one of the worst possible moments in time for that city. Um, It lost half its population, but we found this little neighborhood that was uh, full of really amazing buildings and bought one as a home. And I found myself picketing um, down the street with a group of people I didn't know over, (laughs) over a beautiful Victorian house that was going to be torn down by a car dealer for surface lot parking and that was sort of the beginning of the end that's when I (laughs) moved to the dark side which is real estate development um because I helped found a community development corporation with those people and started working on real estate from the nonprofit side as a, a leader in the community and really absolutely fell in love with the process and fell in love with the ability to make something out of nothing take a building that was uh, destroyed or vacant or piece of land and make it a really useful and beautiful part of the community. And um, I worked for the planning department in Pittsburgh, which gave me a very particular insight about the way the city thinks about revitalizing oh, a city physically. Um, and then I launched my own company and started doing little real estate projects. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of the end. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is, you You kind of jumped all over the place. Not um, really. I think it was a very clear progression. <laughs> true. I meant, I meant spatially you moved, you moved from. I've moved, I've been in different places, but honestly, yeah. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh has been def- the defining place for me okay. because really here I learned all about community development corporations, about communities, about their sort of palpable need to be involved in making their cities better. Um, I learned about um, planning because I I worked for the planning department. One of the best jobs I ever had. It was really interesting. Um, I I learned about how public-private partnerships work in real estate. I I, I really learned a lot about this, this, um, realm of real estate development that is about fixing places really that's mm-hmm. what it's about not necessarily real estate uh, about going and doing a deal in a greenfield that makes you a lot of money but real estate that is really focused on filling in where no investment has been made and i just found it 
fascinating. I don't, you know, I grew up in Sydney, Australia, and I would never have had this experience there. So in mm-hmm. in my mind, Pittsburgh was formative and ex- extremely wonderfully so. <laughs> that's that's amazing. I've I have been to Pittsburgh once. Uh, I really enjoyed my stay, except for it was in January. So, oh, that's cold. Yeah, yeah. I, I still, you know, I still wanted to get out, and I walked around the entire downtown area and walked across uh, the bridge to to the Steelers. Oh, the bridge is a cold in January. Yeah. Oh, it was <laughs> terrible, but it was so. It's it's such a cool. Area. When were, when were you here? What? How long that ago? That was probably five years ago. Yeah, so it had already changed a lot. So mm-hmm. the first decade when I lived here, it was really a sad place. People talked about Pittsburgh as in very sad terms. Like, And I, as a newcomer, saw an amazing little downtown with incredible architecture, which is, you know, the result of all the philanthropy here. It's really a very beautiful, dense little downtown. It has very interesting neighborhoods um, in a ver- very interesting topography and and I would say to people, this is a beautiful city. And they'd say to me, you don't really mean that, do you? <laughs> because it was depressed. It was, mm-hmm. you know, it had lost half its population. I think at its peak, Pittsburgh had 700,000 people. And even now it's only just over 300,000. Wow. But over the last five to 10 years, the demographic has radically shifted. It, I think for a while it was the second oldest county only to date. And now when you come here, it's really full of hipsters and it has a, a lot of youth and vibrancy to it that it didn't didn't have when I first moved here. So it's been a really interesting and fabulous transformation um, to watch. It's definitely changed and there have been, you know, lots of fabulous real estate developments and new stadiums. If you were coming to a game, then you would have seen those on um, so it's it's been yeah it's been quite a journey. Yeah. That was my training ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to see just about everything. I mean, that was yeah uh, yeah, and you got to see that progression, which is pretty special. Yeah, right? it was really interesting. And you know, everyone, you know, some people take credit, you know. But what's interesting to me is that there's a tipping point that's reached when enough people do enough things that that a place just changes and becomes mm. goes from undesirable to desirable. And I I don't think you can point to any one thing. There's so many things involved in that. And I, um, yeah, it, it was interesting to watch. Awesome. So was, was there kind of a defining moment when you got into real estate, when you realized that one, you know, this was your calling, this is what you wanted to kind of do for your life. Uh, and then, and then also, when did you make that connection that this could be a vehicle to kind of impact the community as a whole, just real oh. estate development? So, I mean, real estate, you know, if you're talking about architecture, that was pretty early on. But mm-hmm. but the point where I decided to really move into real estate and real estate development was when I became involved in the local neighborhood community development corporation. I, I mm-hmm. helped to found it. I really didn't know what real estate development was or looked like. And we didn't have any funds. We were just a group of people. There happened to be a lot of architects in that neighborhood because (laughs) of the building stock. And we were just a group of people who knew intuitively that this was a neighborhood worth saving. We didn't know how to go about it. And um, our first project that we tackled was a house that was on a very critical 
corner from an urban design point of view. There was a church on one corner, um, a bus stop. There was a school on another corner. And this house had had a fire and half the roof was missing and the church wanted to buy it and uh, and tear it down again for, for, for surface parking. Surface parking. Mm-hmm. And the architects and urban designers on that little nonprofit just – Freaked out. <laughs> no, no, no. You can't. From an urban design point of view, that's not a gateway into a community. Mm-hmm. So, how are we going to save the building? And at the time, I had left my job in an architect's office because I, I just really didn't love what I was doing. I was painting and doing other things, and I said, "Okay, I'll volunteer my time and try and figure out how to put this building back into good use." And wow. I just fell in love with the process. It was. Um, we took a really big old Victorian house and converted it into three condominiums with everyone saying, you can't do it along the way. Everyone. <laughs> um, and so was that them from all an the, entitlement standpoint or just the bank saying, okay. Oh, we don't like three condominiums. Like condos, Redevelopment yeah. authority saying no one will ever buy them. You're never going to get them financed. Everything was no, 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 no. <laughs> it only makes me more determined. <laughs> <laughs> the more no's I hear, the happy, the more I want to keep going. Um, <laughs> and we we actually turned them into three condominiums and sold them immediately, just wow. immediately. And I really believe, and so, you know, against everyone's advice, we sold that building and it 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 is no, it was no longer an eyesore. It was usefully repurposed and the units were gorgeous. And that's also part, I think, of my architectural training is. It's not just about building units. It's building about beautiful spaces. And if you build beautiful spaces, people will come. Mm -hmm. So all the people who said no, 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 probably had something in their mind. And the architects on this board had something entirely different on their mind. And we built three really pretty unusual condominium units in that very large house. And they've been occupied ever since. So I just fell in. I I think I'm a maker at heart. And I... Mm -hmm. I love the idea of, I love the process of taking nothing and turning it into something. And really that's what real estate is. Development is about absolutely with a piece of land or an idea or an old building. And, and you work your way through, you know, all the complexity of financing it and um, designing it and figuring out its best possible use into something gorgeous at the other end so that's that was really the turning point for me wow and did just curious did you do the architecture for the uh we had an units on board i probably you know it was a long time ago and i probably was involved in figuring it out i'm always sketching but i pretty quickly bought two other buildings in the neighborhood uh, and against all (laughs) advice one of them was um being used as a five-unit building was an enormous old mansion, really big, as a five-unit building, which was actually permitted use. But I was part of a rezoning effort in that neighbourhood to to stop those buildings being cut up and to um, because we had a lot of slumlords who were really maximising and milking buildings and really not looking after them. Mm-hmm. And so I took that building and, again, against everyone's advice, converted it into two units a homeowner unit with a, uh, I suppose you would call it a U, an ADU unit mm-hmm. on the top floor um, and and sold that building. Um, and 
and also a second one that was in that I purchased from HUD that was in really bad shape. And then I started looking further afield for larger projects and and started working on um, one downtown that was an eight-unit building. So wow. I'm just obsessed with it. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And uh, I'm just curious, what is that eight-unit building? Yeah, this it is was- a... That was also a vacant building in downtown. This was downtown before any lofts existed. And, you know, foolish me, I thought lofts, everyone likes lofts. Of course, that's a (laughs) slam dunk, you know. But we're in a city here in Pittsburgh. As much as I love it, it has a slightly Midwestern mentality. It's a little more conservative. And in my mind, lofts were not rocket science, but apparently in most lenders' minds, they were. Um, So I this was an eight-unit building eight floors it was an eight-story building that i took through zoning rezoned um and repurposed as eight condominium lofts and it was really eight condominiums because it was the only financing i could get um i could not and i and i have to thank two female bankers for my entire portfolio because i could not convince anyone to lend money to Mm me um so that was my next project i did two you know actually i did three and in the neighborhood I lived in, and then um, and then this one downtown, which was the first loft project for Pittsburgh, and was we oh, had wow. a little opening event, and I was uh, uh, completely overwhelmed by lines of people wanting to get in to see it <laughs> and um, wondering and what it was. <laughs> this was but it did yeah. very well. Again, we sold. I sold all the units before I finished construction. So. You know, it's a, it's a total fight getting capital, a total fight doing something innovative and different. But but these fights did work out well. Do you? I'm just curious. Do you think that fight to to gain the capital was that due to maybe not having many projects under your belt, or do you think it was the complexity or the the strangeness oh, of the project. I think, is- I think all everything. It was. Everything. Um, it was. Well, I'd done a. Few, I've done three projects by then, and um, so I had some experience, but not downtown. And certainly, the more conservative the banker, the more skeptically they're going to look at this. Secondly, mm-hmm. lofts, no market, difficult to appraise. Banks are really not made for that. They're not really made for innovation. They really. Um, you know, continue to invest in what they know. So that was definitely a second piece of it. Um, and and without a doubt, a third piece is that I'm a woman. And for many years, I was the only female developer in Pittsburgh, which is nuts. It's <laughs> um, very true. So, yeah. You know, however someone looked at me, you know, weird weird woman with a weird accent with curly hair doing a weird project that was a little too weird for Pittsburgh. <laughs> uh okay that that all that makes sense yeah. uh it's that's unfortunate that was so tough that one really set the stage for you know five more projects that I did downtown and then the big boys followed with really large projects so i i did build a reputation for myself with those projects and um it just took it took time sure sure and now fast forward small change among all your other projects so you know the thing is you know what i developed um was a business that 
kind of specialized in small public privately financed deals because I chose projects that were always very difficult, vacant buildings in neighborhoods that hadn't had projects before. And quite frankly, I chose those pretty purposefully for a couple of reasons. One is that (laughs) I shouldn't maybe say this publicly, but having been on the board of a nonprofit um, community development corporation and actually having led it for 11 years, I kind of wanted to go away to a place where no one would bother me. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) And, And downtown Pittsburgh, there was no one working there. There were developers working in other neighborhoods, but I just didn't want to compete. I wanted to just try and build something on my own. And secondly, I wanted to, um, really make a difference. So I wanted to choose buildings, architectures, renovations, infills that really kind of would contribute to the landscape. That was really, that's really always been really important to me because I believe that you can spend the same amount of money on building a building and make a difference or not. It's really not, it's not about the budget as much as it might be about a little bit more brain damage. But I think Mm -hmm. for me, that really always always mattered um so uh and then i'm sorry i have to go back to your question what were you (laughs) no i just uh wanted to fast forward oh yeah the public private small change and yeah yeah so public private partnerships loomed large because these projects were always in underserved neighborhoods with very soft markets, if any market at all. And I started working with the Urban Redevelopment Authority on um, on filling that sort of soft gap, knowing full well that I have a project that I would have to be very patient, patient with in the long run. And they were part of my capital stack, and they were they were really the one of the primary investors in my capital stack because I was going to places that they wanted to see redeveloped. And they had relationships with community banks, which would permit me to um, invest less capital myself and sweat equity. And, you know, they worked very hard at trying to get developers into places that no one else wanted to be to start the investment flow. When I was doing this work, um, for most of the time, Mayor Murphy, Tom Murphy was mayor and he was very, um, uh, and you should probably interview him, um, (laughs) pretty interesting, but he was very real estate driven and he created a fund actually from out of operational funds that the city had because the city had compressed so much in size, he didn't need as many staff people. And he created this PDF fund precisely for the sort of work I was doing. And then they had other sources of funding. And so, you know, URA, husband, architect, contractor would all in different ways at different times um, contribute capital. And then there was a real shift in the mid to late 2000s for a couple of reasons. And one was that the Bush administration had really cut back CBDG funds, community development block grant funds. Mm -hmm. And those were the funds that the URA in Pittsburgh repurposed as second deferred mortgages and, and, and tools like that that would help projects where you could never borrow even 60% of the total project cost from a bank. I, I did one project in East Liberty where the bank lent us 40% and we filled in the remaining. And, and by the way, the, 
I think the building cost us a dollar um, and it was a 20,000 square foot building. And we had to fill in the remainder with all of these sorts of funding, you know, it was not a huge building, but we needed 30,000 square foot building. We needed to find the rest of the funds. And the URA was a very active and wonderful partner in that. But they lost a lot of their funds through the when the Bush administration um, cut back funds and by the mid to late 2000s were saying they just didn't know what to invest in. They just didn't have enough funds and they needed sure. to rethink how they were going to invest in projects. And then at the same time, there was the, the whole banking meltdown. So banks looked for more equity. They looked for more conservative de- deals. And it, we just couldn't get deals to pencil. We just could yeah. not get them to work. And so I spent a few years um, just shoring up my projects um, and turning them over to a property manager, kind of making room in my life for the next thing, whatever that was going to be. And I really didn't know what that was going to be. But um, And someone came to me and started talking to me about the Jobs Act of 2012. And the Jobs Act of 2012, Jobs stands for Jumpstart Our Business Startups, um, was legislation put forward by the Obama administration, which included... um, legislation around crowdfunding with the purpose of moving crowdfunding from donations to crowdfunding for investments, which had never been possible before. The reason for this was, you know, there are many reasons for this, but the primary reason was that everyone knows that small businesses are really how jobs are grown in this country. And yet small businesses are the last ones to get financing. They're typically financed through credit cards and friends and family and all sorts of wacky ways like that. And they wanted to make that legit. They wanted to make it legitimate for people to invest in and then get a return for businesses that they invested in. And this has been driven by some enormous crowdfunding um, donation raises on Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. Um, Oculus Rift, I think, might have been the turning point where people made donations and, you know, probably got a set of glasses or a T-shirt, and then uh, they sold that company for a lot of money and none of those donors benefited. They were not investors and they wanted to be investors so that's what really drove it you secure a bunch of securities attorneys and people in securities all and business owners all petitioned the government and eventually they came out with these rules and those rules now they took a long time to roll out they didn't really go fully they weren't fully implemented until mid 2016 but they now permit in one way or another, anyone over the age of 18 to really invest in a business or a building. Um, And as long as they're investing through the right vehicle, through um, uh, someone who's making an offering under those regulations and following all those rules. But still, you know, before that, it was only accredited investors. Right. And accredited investors are only about 3% of the population someone who has a million dollars in net worth without their primary residence or someone who has income of 200,000. And as you can imagine, they're aggregated. That in the limits we- it quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. And they're aggregated in the wealthy parts of the country, New York and Florida and maybe Texas and California, not in Pittsburgh. Okay. <laughs> um, but you know, that's true of most of the country. Right. And so, um, and even, even with that 3%, um, you have to think that someone who's interested in investing in real estate really needs to know someone. 
You can't just go out and just invest in real estate. So a very small percentage of people had the opportunity to invest in real estate. And I had learned in Pittsburgh that my neighbors would do anything to make their neighborhood better. They would band together and buy a vacant house to stop it from being from falling into the wrong hands. And I really thought there was an opportunity here to create a vehicle for communities to invest in real estate in their own community. So that's really how small change came about on the back of pretty new legislation that is pretty burdensome, which we ma- which we manage for people who want to raise money. Um, but it is a pretty inspiring legislation because it's it's the the SEC's first attempt to really democratize investment. Now, their their intent was always that this would be used for businesses. It just happens that it works very well for real estate as well. And in my mind, a small developer doing a small project is pretty much like a small business. Absolutely. It's it's just a regulation and people are applying it in in different ways. Um, You know, it's probably a confusing industry when you go look at crowdfunding platforms because they're all doing something different, but they're really doing it with one of three rules that are out there. So it's there's a lot of creativity out there at the moment. <laughs> so small change is we focused on real estate and we focused on transformative real estate and we help developers um, raise money from investors, whether they're in their neighborhood or from all over the country. Anyone over the age of 18 can invest. Um, and... Um, but they have to meet an impact bar. We've developed our own proprietary small change index. And when a developer comes to us, the first thing we look at is to make sure that they fit our criteria. There are lots of ways to make impact. There's no one way, but they must reach a score of 60% of the total to really be a fit for our mission. You can make an impact by creating jobs or an incubator or filling in a piece of land that's been vacant for years, or you can make an impact by building a luxury house and making it, you know, and having it be the first passive house in in the city, or there's lots of ways to make impact, but, Mm -hmm. but there has to be some intent there um, to make a difference. Absolutely. So uh, just kind of going back to starting small change, and then I, I do want to hit on sure. the the small change index, but it, there's got to be a lot that was involved when you, oh, yeah. <laughs> you first started this. <laughs> what were some of the biggest hurdles that you faced? Oh, well, the, probably the change? biggest hurdle was I didn't know what a security was when I was. <laughs> That's a pretty large hurdle. So, <laughs> so a security is really just sort of the sale of an interest in in a business or or a building, and that's what it's called. It's called a security. And in order to buy um, a, an interest in in a business or a building, unless you're going to be a general partner and involved in the management of the building, you have to follow securities laws. Mm-hmm. I think many people don't actually know that. Mm. You can't just band together 20 people and sell them all a piece. Um, It doesn't work that way. So um, I really had to learn about those laws and the new laws. And um, I am am not a programmer. I'm not a coder. I'd never done anything like this before, but I had to figure out how to build um, a technology platform, Mm -hmm. um, which we built completely in-house. So I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah. Um, We built the platform 
the rules, the regulation crowdfunding for democratizing investment did not emerge as quickly as promised. The Jobs Act was written in 2012 or was actually legislated in 2012, and we didn't see the final rules until the end of 2015. And by then I'd built a platform and tested, a, out of desperation, a project with a different rule that only um, permitted accredited investors. But I had to really go back and rebuild it because mm. the rules required notifications and um, archiving of a lot of information and educational material that um, we hadn't addressed until then. So I would say two, 2016 was a complete rebuild of the platform. And then we had to um, become members of FINRA, which under that, yeah, we, we almost operate like a small broker dealer, like a mini broker dealer, mm -hmm. but we had to become members of FINRA. And I didn't know what FINRA was. Like all of this is new to me, right? The whole securities world is a very foreign looking world for an architect, <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> they didn't teach you about that? In uh, no, architecture school, I had no. to I had to learn um, how to be compliant. All the steps I had to take, I had to look for software to worm archive my emails. Um, you know, the complaints about Hillary Clinton's emails not being archived properly. Same issue, right? <laughs> um, so that um, so that at any time, Finra can come and audit me and look at everything. I had to learn all of that, and I had to set systems in place, not only for um, how to create disclosure packets for for developers wanting to raise money, but what the investment flow would look like for investors and how it would be compliant and how it would manage that in the back end. So the early years was just a ton of learning, a ton That's of- crazy. But interesting. That's a full-time job. Oh, it was absolutely. <laughs> and more. Yeah. It's been more than a full-time job since I launched it. It's been a never less than 60 hours a week, often closer to 80. So wow. yeah, it's a very it's a it's a heavy lift, in part because the rules are burdensome, and I'm not complaining about that. Um, their rules are burdensome because the SEC wants to protect unsophisticated investors, investors but it's a lot for a small business it's an a it's a huge layer on a startup business so wow yeah <laughs> you had to learn how to advertise too because in the rules you can say certain things you can say you cannot say other things so early on we would include things and uh, we would do advertising that would require us to archive it. And I, over time, I realized that the act of evidencing all of that information was so intense that it just wasn't worth advertising that way. Mm -hmm. So we we shifted our practices really to fit the rule. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. 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 You, you can't uh, publish. Mm -hmm. But, returns. you know, essentially we do all of that because what we want to do is we want to provide a simple and seamless way for small developers to raise money this way. So when they come to us, um, we we basically will put all the pieces together for them. They don't we'll we'll coach them on the rules and what they can and can't say, and they need to be aware of them. But we will guide them completely through, and we make it as simple as possible. Can we talk on that real quick? What 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 does that process look like? One for a developer that's coming in, and then maybe on the back end, what does that look like for somebody that wants to invest? 
So most developers who've raised money through equity partners that have probably at one time or other um, had gone to an attorney who's written a PPM for them, a private placement memorandum. So these rules are really kind of the same thing. Um, a private placement mem- memorandum um, is falls under Regulation D, and we use one of those rules um, as a way to raise money from accredited investors, but we also use another rule called Regulation Crowdfunding which is the one that's democratizing investment. But either way, the PPM actually um, discusses everything about a um, an offering to an investor that the SEC believes should be discussed. It'll include all sorts of risks um, that the investor might uh, might need to be aware of. It'll explain the project. It'll explain the numbers. It will explain what what return the the developer is offering, all of that is encompassed in this disclosure packet. So under regulation crowdfunding, the disclosure packet has a very particular look to it. It's really the same information, but the SEC prescribes um, it to be presented in a very particular way for people who've never seen this information before. And I I really like it. One of the Mm -hmm. things about regulation crowdfunding, it says that we have to present everything in plain English. And I, I love that. I think if you're going to, I think everything should be in plain English. When you start speaking in a, you know, an investor speak or or legal speak and you no one can follow along, you're going to lose people. And it's not, it's just not necessary. So uh, the rule also says that we're not supposed to help um, developers with that documentation, which is kind of ridiculous because... <laughs> If someone's done it the first time, they have to go to a lawyer, they have to get help putting it together, and the rule says that then my lawyer has to review it to make sure it complies with the rule. So instead of all of that, we put resources behind building a complete almost white label packet of disclosure documents. Mm-hmm. So when a, um, And we provide them to everyone. And the language is pre-reviewed and written by our attorney, who we think is one of the best crowdfunding attorneys in the country. So we um, we have an intake form for a developer. They provide us with all the information that we would need to populate those forms. We create a draft and populate those forms. And then we go back and forth with them on Google Docs to make sure that everything is correct. Like, for example, you can't say, your project is the best thing since sliced bread. You can't use adjectives. You can't use definitives in documents. You shouldn't make promises. You should never say we will do this. You should always say we plan to build 10 units because something might happen and you might build eight mm-hmm. and you have no control over that. So we we will sort of review to make sure all the language is correct and that the, um, uh, the offering has enough information in it will prod the developer if we think they need to add more until we have a packet that is really pretty nice. You can download any of them from our um, platform. They all look consistent and that's pretty purposeful because we want it to be easy for investors to understand what we're presenting them. Um, So all of that is prepared. Um, There are other steps we have to take. We have to actually register the document with the SEC. We have to, if the developer is raising more than a certain amount, they have to get a financial review um, and they need to get bad actor reports. All of those things are part of the the requirements. And we kind of manage getting all of that 
and getting the document registered and creating the campaign page. So we manage as much of that as, po as we possibly can. We have worked with some developers who've given us fabulous business plans and it's taken us a day to put that disclosure packet together and others who are not very well prepared and it takes three months. So that piece is really up to the developer. You know, they've got to get us, it's like a good bank packet, you know, they've really got to get us the information. And then um, once we also create a bank account, we have a, an escrow account, all of that is under the purview of FINRA, what that account's got to look like, all of that is following the rules. And, um, and then we launch the offering and investors start investing. And the funds are kept in, um, it's 99% it's electronic, the investment process, mm -hmm. even the generation of the investment agreement. The funds are kept in um, an escrow account until the end of the offering, at which point um, they're wired to the developer and then they're really invested. Mm -hmm. And then we provide all of the information for all the investors to the developer. So that's how it works. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it, you guys do almost everything. It seems like you guys. We try to make it simple, but what we don't do is we don't we don't write the business plan. Right. We vet the business plan. We make sure that it makes sense. I wouldn't call it underwriting at this point, but we're we're close to it. But we, you know, we we make sure that if someone's um, building a a building, let's say they're building a building that, and the rents are in the performer at 2000 a month, we'll at least do a review of what rents are like in that neighborhood to make sure that the, the, the deal makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, we do wow. require developers to have some experience. We found that early on, we had some developers who were doing first time projects and it was just, it was too much for them. They really couldn't handle it. So mm -hmm. Um, so, you, you know, you need to know what you're doing. You need to understand at least why we're asking things. And 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 on the whole, it's pretty much what a bank would ask for. Mm -hmm. And so what does that look like for an investor now? Just a brief. Investor sees a campaign page, which is really the same business plan as in um, as in the disclosure packet. They can download the entire disclosure packet if they want to really get in the weeds and they probably should, should at least read one of them. They all look the same. We also provide LLC operating um, agreement language to the developer. I mean, all of this is to make it simple mm -hmm. because there are so many rules around this regulation. We just want to make sure that we're doing this correctly. So it's all packaged together. The disclosure packet's probably 90 pages long usually okay. with everything in it. Um, the campaign page has a video on photos and maps, whatever else. And one of the requirements of the rule is also that every um, investor has the opportunity to ask questions directly of the developer, but that everyone should get the benefit of the answers. So there's no communications, one-on-one -on -one communications with developers. That's not permitted. Instead, you can post a question on the page and the developer will answer so that everyone can see the questions and answers, which yeah, kind of yeah. rounds out the offering pretty well, well I think. And yeah, that's, that's a great questions. idea. Going forward, what do you see your legacy with all your different projects, small change and whatever project you you decide to take on next? What do you see looking forward is, is kind of your legacy and the legacy of 
a small change. This isn't a small question, so. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, you know, what I really want small change to do is make a difference. And I think we're just really at the beginning, we're just scratching the surface. And the hardest thing about this has been finding investors and we're building some momentum now. We have an investor club that we launched with the Impact Finance Center in Denver, um, which is seeing a lot of activity, um, a lot of people downloading my podcast. So people are interested in impact in real estate, but getting them over the hurdle of investing is kind of the next step. It's a lot for for someone who's never had the opportunity to invest before Investing in real estate is a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. So um, I wish we could provide more. It's just, you know, we have limited resources. But I think that is a stumbling block. But I hope that we'll have 100,000 investors sometime soon and they'll be all investing in transformational projects and um, all of which will make a difference. I think probably one of the most exciting things for me is to be able to highlight female developers and um, minority developers on our site and, you know, and show the world that um, real estate can be equitable. It's not now, that's for sure. Um, but um, that really, that really matters to me. Um, that really matters to me. Yeah. You guys are definitely taking a big step in that direction yeah. by opening, opening this platform to, for investors that wouldn't have this opportunity and developers that, you know, don't have the access to capital that uh, right. I, was, I was talking to someone earlier uh, on the podcast and that was his biggest hurdle to get his first project was oh, yeah. obtaining Thanks. that capital, just like you said earlier. And um, capital is not equal. Right. I think that's the one thing I really, if I had known that early on, I don't know if I would have done things differently, but I didn't realize how inequitable it was. And, and I'm a, I'm a white woman. I cannot imagine what it's like for a minority developer to seek capital in a conservative city. It, it's mm -hmm. really, it's uh, very inequitable. So, um, yeah, I would like to make a small difference in in that issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're definitely on your way. I, yeah. I appreciate it. all the hard work. It's it's amazing. I've visited the site a few times and trying to see what which one which looks best for me <laughs> and try to see I if I could make I one of these. I cannot advise ones. you, but there's five on the site now, and they're right. they're all um, they're all really different, which is yeah. a, a fun part of this they're all very different and they're all they're they're all interesting i want yeah. to say great but the sec would smack me so <laughs> <laughs> they're they very all, interesting you know, and we work a, a long time with the developers to get these on board so um yeah it these these guys are all and this group is guys these guys are all working pretty hard to do what they do they're doing for sure. This is not an easy road for them. Mm -hmm. So anyone who wants to help, they're going to be extremely grateful. Absolutely. So that kind of segues into to this last point. I uh, just wanted to give you an opportunity to tell 
the listeners a little bit more about how they can find out more about you, your podcast, the, sure. the uh, website, Small Change, and then um, obviously I'll include links to all that information. But sure. uh, if you want to give a, a shout yeah. out right now. yeah, Sure. So Small Change, you can find Small Change at smallchange.co. Um, it's pretty easy to navigate. There's a homepage which, with a bunch of tiles which will show you which projects are open. You can just click into them and read all the information, uh, watch the videos. There's some great videos there. At the top of the page, you can also sort them by minority developers or creative economy or um, female developers. So we're really kind of trying to point out holes in the capital system, I suppose. So smallchange.co, if you want to reach me, you can email me at eve at smallchange.co. And um, I publish a podcast every every uh, week um, on making change in real estate. And you can find that at my personal website, evepicker.com. You can probably also find it on Spotify and various other places, but just go to evepicker.com and there are are links there. That's the easiest way to find it. We're we're heading towards 5,000 down, actually over 5,000 downloads this month. So we're fairly new. So that's really building, which actually staggers me, (laughs) but (laughs) makes me, but actually makes me feel like, you know, there's a world of people out there who care, which is wonderful. That's awesome. I really like that. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, I want to thank you for all your time today. You, This was incredibly interesting for me. Obviously, this was uh, something that you don't hear much about, crowdfunding, but for these these projects that are really making a difference. And uh, I, I really want to thank you for your time. Yeah, you know, Matt, there's one more thing I forgot to give a oh, shout out about. Absolutely. Um, I just launched um, a real estate impact investing club. Okay. in collaboration with a group called the Impact Finance Center. And if you find me on LinkedIn, Eve Picker on LinkedIn, you can see the invitations there. But um, that's a great place to learn more about investing in real estate because every quarter we're having an event with some larger investors who talk about why they invest in things, um, maybe five deals standing up and explaining this sort of what they're looking for, and also some social enterprises that are in the real estate arena. So it's a great way to learn more if you're interested. And it's free. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it better. Yeah, no, that's perfect. I'll, uh, I'll include a link to that as well. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. you. Okay. All right. You have a good rest of the day. Thank you. 